Is it wrong to respond to a tragic situation with humour? Is it insensitive to be light-hearted about something you feel is unjust? And what if humour is your only remaining coping mechanism? And what does that say about the situation you're in? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. This is part two of a three-part case study on the ethics of the live animal export industry in Australia. To find all three episodes, you can subscribe for free to Learning Capacity on your favourite podcast app and look for episodes 80, 81 and 82. My guest in the series is Dr Lynn Simpson, who's sailed 57 voyages on live animal export ships over 11 years, transporting live Australian sheep and cattle to the other side of the world for slaughtering and processing. In this episode, Dr Simpson tells a couple of stories of what happened when she arrived at her destinations. On one level, they're quite comical, but on the other hand, they're far from it. Just how far can humour go in helping people to deal with the stresses of extreme situations? And a warning, some listeners may find this story distressing. Let's turn now to life in port. The uh, The ship has arrived. Things don't necessarily get much better. Um, you've got a couple of stories that I'd like you to tell us a little bit about. Tell me about the story in Libya where some guys come up to you with a bull in the back of a ute. That was a challenge. And I think if I hadn't been such a seasoned seafarer and I also hadn't spent so much time with those different cultures and those challenges, um, it may have worked out differently. But um, so essentially the day before, we're unloading in, in Libya and, you know, loading some of these ships takes about two or three days in Australia with big trucks and lots of manpower that's quite qualified. Unloading some of these ships um, can take five days plus um, because they've got small tiny trucks that might carry 13 cattle each and you've got to back each of them up and unload say 10,000 cattle, 20,000 cattle and um, and so it takes a long time so you, you sort of get a little bit entrenched in these ports and quite comfortable there. Now I fortunately worked with an Arabic company for the first five years at sea and I learnt um, quite a bit of Arabic which was very handy and um, we were in Libya and they speak Arabic so the night before, we'd had a bull that had broken out of one of these these trucks because they're usually crappy little trucks that are held together with rope and you sort of think, oh, my God, that whole thing's just going to bust open and everything's going to fall out on the road. But, you know, surprisingly, they rarely do. Anyway, this one bull, he'd escaped and he tried to um, to take off and he raced across the wharf and he jumped the breakwater and he just started swimming north across the Mediterranean heading towards Italy. And <laughs> I'm uh, out of here. <laughs> Yeah, which, you know, I thought, good on you, that's pretty bold. And, um, you know, he's learned. And um, unfortunately, you know, as a vet, we're really used to seeing dogs and cats hit by car and um, and you sort of go into vet practices and we see these codes on the wall or on their cages and you're like, oh, yeah, it got hit by a car, you know, HBC. And um, and I got into a little boat to go after this bull because sometimes we can rope them and bring them back. And, um, and he got hit by a container ship. And I was just like, I wonder what acronym I write on that. You know, that's a bit weird. So, you know, it was about a 36,000-tonne container ship. So I needed a magic wand to be able to do anything to um, to help him. So so he was he was smashed and dead and just we thought he was finished. And like, well, he was dead, but we just thought that's it. He's out of our lives. Um, the following night had been a big day at work. You know, you usually start about 6 in the morning during um, – discharge or unloading and you'll work up until 10 o'clock at night, whatever, um, and you'll go 24-7 if you have to depending on how many staff and what your rotation works out to be. And so I was actually enjoying a, um, a cheeky gin and tonic with the captain having finished work at about 10 o'clock at night and I was sort of over the whole lot. And um, 
and I got called downstairs and somebody had brought our ball back and I'm like, what? And so I went downstairs to identify the body, you know. It, wasn't it was the same ball? Yeah, yeah. Some There's a lot of little boats that cross the Mediterranean. Unfortunately, a lot of them are smuggling people and, um, and sometimes they're smuggling weapons. So we used to see a lot of this from the ships, which was really quite an eye-opener coming from naive little safe Australia. And... Um, and yeah, some somebody returning from the Mediterranean had just tied our bull to the back of their ship and or their boat and brought it into port and tied it to the back of our ship. So bit cheeky. So I went down. I made sure it was ours. wasn't really a long shot. And um, and so yeah, it was. So I organised a forklift to get him out of the water and get him disposed of. And um, and I'm walking back to the back to my ship, and I was only. 50 metres away, and it's it's at night, and um, so it's about midnight about this time, and ports are alive all the time. There's always lots of light and like lots of sepia sort of style light. It's it's quite an interesting environment, and I'm walking back to the to the ship, and this Ute pulls up next to me, and of course I'm the only female on the wharf, so everybody knows that I'm the doctor because in, you know, in the just, Middle East you're the only female on the wharf in the Middle East in the middle of the night. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Yeah, uh, yeah, no. Um, and, um, again, you get used to it. You find – I've found places walking around in rural Australia that I would be much more concerned about my welfare than, uh, than, okay. than, than Olivia and Wharf. Maybe not now. They're, they're having some strife. But um, So, yes, I'm running back. This youth pulls up next to me and I just get this, doctora, doctora, big problem. And I'm like, what? And I look in the back of the youth and I'm like, oh, great. So I'd had two other escapees that afternoon, escapee bulls that had escaped from – um, trucks. I'd managed to sedate them with like a dart gun and um, I had tied them up so that they couldn't recover immediately and then escape again. And I'd tied them up, put them in the recovery position and the, the plan was that somebody was to lift them with a forklift into a truck and they would be taken to the feedlot and then they would wake up fully there. Um, instead what had happened is these guys, for whatever reason, had decided to run over one of the bull's back legs and break them. And so this bull was in the back of the ute um, big bull, 15, uh, sorry, um, 500 kilos. Um, he was in the back of the ute. Both his back legs were completely snapped and folded over the back of his rump, which was just a hideous thing for anyone to see because you just go, when you see those kind of fractures, you're like, oh, that is just so gross. Fortunately, he was still off his chops with the drugs I'd given him, so he didn't know a lot about what was going on, but his head was sort of behind the what would be our driver's seat looking um, but in the back of the tray looking at me and I've just I've had a couple of gin and tonics which you're not allowed to do in Libya so it was a bit naughty and um, and I've whipped into western veterinary mode and I've gone oh okay yeah no no I see the problem not a problem one moment and um, all in Arabic and I've raced up the gangway and I'd hidden a gun up in the roof beam just above where everybody was coming in and out of the ship. Nobody knew that the gun was there and it was just an easy access point for me. So I just raced up, grabbed the gun, had a lot of people look at me in a gasp going, oh, my God, we didn't know that gun was there. And I just trotted down the, the gangway and I went to shooting. And all these Libyans have come out of nowhere. There's about 10 of them surrounding my ute or this ute going, um, what are you doing? No, no, no. And I said, well, you know, he's got to die. He's broken. And they're like, no, 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 we take to kill. We, we, we eat. And... Um, and I said, well, okay, kill him. And they're like, no, 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 we take away. And I knew oh, that- so Sorry, presumably that was because of a, uh, a religious uh, method of killing the animal properly. Yeah, well, they said, you know, it's not halal if you kill it. And I said, well, you kill it then. And they said, no, 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 we kill elsewhere. And I, 
you know, we hear this talk that um, a lot of Muslims want to kill an animal each year as part of their Islamic um, uh, faith. And the fact of the matter is most of the Muslim guys that I know don't want to kill anything. They'd rather be on an iPod or an iPhone and, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're catching up with us with um, technology. They don't want to be out touching some filthy sheep and cutting its throat. They would much rather be on the internet. So um, I shouldn't laugh, but the absurdity of that just, just uh, well... <laughs> Continue. <laughs> well, well, we get painted the wrong picture. We, we get painted this picture that they're all barbarians and they just can't wait to get a knife out and it's, it's just rubbish. And, um, and so I knew that these guys weren't going to kill this bull and I knew that they would wait till the morning till a butcher opened, which wouldn't be till about 10 o'clock. And so this bull by then would be fully conscious and um, would know certainly everything about the fact that his legs were snapped and at the back of his back, you know, on the top of his back. I've been in incredible pain. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, that's really uncool. So, um, and so I just said to them, I said, right, okay, you've got to kill it. If you want to kill it, hello, you kill it right now. And they're like, no, 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 we take. And I said, no, you kill it right now. And I handed them a knife in my, that I carried in my pocket, which is something. Oh. Like, Gee, don't mess with you. <laughs> well, yeah, I never go anywhere in the Middle East without my mobile phone, a credit card, and a knife, and um, <laughs> and that's probably that's probably almost true for Australia as well. So. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I just handed them the knife, gave them no excuse, and I said, okay, tick-tock, you've got one minute, kill it. And, um, and they just looked at me aghast, and I've got the gun in my hand, and they start trying to come up with excuses. So I, I had the gun, and the gun's like a – it looks like a pistol on steroids. They're the ones that we use in slaughterhouses in Australia. And, um, and I, like I said, I had a couple of gin and tonics, and here I am with this gun, so it's completely, you know, not recommended firearm use. Thankfully, I wasn't in Australia. And um, – and I start pointing my gun at these people. I don't realise I'm doing it. I'm sort of going around the guys in the back of the ute going, you know, I'm lecturing them because they're like, <laughs> it won't be halal. And I start lecturing them in Arabic about um, about Islam and Allah and Allah is kind and generous and it is not Islamic to um, cause cruelty and pain to this animal. What are you doing? You know, and I started berating them. And I didn't realise um, that I was using my pistol basically as a pointed finger as I went round from one to the other and oh they were goodness. slowly receding and um, and I'm just like, oh, that's weird. They're stepping back. And um, and then, then one of the guys just um, raced and dove into the um, the front of the cab and I realised he was going to take off with, with the, the bull and I thought it's not going to happen. I already had it loaded so I just shot the bull in the head which was right in front of me and um, and they all just jumped because the head was on top of where the fuel tank would have been. Oh, and dear. They would have never understood that I was using a captive bolt which meant it had a firing range of 121 millimetres. So <laughs> they were never ever at risk. You have to fire these things point blank and you have to press them hard against the head. And um, and so I just shot the ball and they all just sort of jumped and just went, oh, oh, my God. And I said, there you go. There's your ball. You can go. And I, I've no doubt they ate it, um, regardless of it having been killed by this infidel prostitute on the wharf. But, um, yeah, off the ball went. And, you know, it was one of those occasions where you just have to kind of play a little bit Clint Eastwood, I guess, in this game, it's, it's a pretty tough game, and um, it's not it's not a place for wallflowers, and you really have to sort of hold your own quite a bit. A lot of bluffing, but um, yeah. So these guys really just 
saw an opportunity to collect a large amount of meat and thought, oh, great, we'll take this to the uh, the local butcher down the road and he'll uh, he'll just cut it up for us, not expecting to meet up with you who started uh, pointing a gun in their face, giving them a good old lecture. Oh, they'd probably already been on the phone to all their mates about the barbecue they were going to have tomorrow, <laughs> which they probably still had. Posting pictures on social media, no doubt. <laughs> oh, it it was funny because I then walked up the gangway and um, afterwards, and that was fine by me because that bull being broken, he had to die for his own sake. And then um, the nuts and bolts of it was he had no commercial value for us because we're working with a live consignment and they don't have um, mitigation strategies to salvage meat that's freshly killed, especially when it's full of sedation. So it would have been an interesting barbecue. And um and so, yeah, so it was of no commercial value to, to me, but I was not going to allow him to um, to suffer anymore on my watch. So off he went in the back of the ute and that was fun. And, um, and yeah, and it was funny because I must have looked like a, some kind of an assassin because I then walked up the gangway and my crew who was standing behind the railings started laughing at me and I'm like, oh, yeah, fair enough. And, um, and that's when I realised that I was wearing a T-shirt because I'd finished work, I'd taken my overalls off and got changed and I had a T-shirt and... Um, and the top of the T-shirt, it was Amnesty International, and the top of it had silhouettes of um, kids' arms and hands, <sighs> and then the bottom of it had a line of silhouettes of different weapons, and all very clear. And in between it just said children were born with these arms, not these arms, which being in North Africa was probably wow. not the right place to be wearing that. But no. um, I didn't expect to be off the ship with that shirt on, so it was funny all round, really. You weren't uh, wearing your Greenpeace badge on that T-shirt at the same time, were you? No, no. But ironically, I used to, um, I used to work. I used to do some volunteer work for the RSPCA in between voyages, and there has been the odd voyage where I've joined um, the ship wearing an RSPCA T-shirt, and it's always been greeted quite well. Like most of the people in export are actually quite larrikin-like, and um, and so you know, I'll walk across the wharf with an RSPCA T-shirt on. And you can see the wharfies just shaking their head at me and going, God, you're going to get in trouble for that. And then I remember getting to the top of the gangway one day and, um, and the exporter just looked at me and said, get that bloody thing off, would you? And, um, and it's not that they were against animal welfare, but, of course, you know, the two worlds don't tend to talk well to each other. And so it was just quite funny that I could mix in between these two worlds. I guess there's also an element of uh, uh, humour that needs to come into this as a coping mechanism because, I mean, here we are, Having a, <clears throat> pardon me. Here we are having a, a, a I guess a, a bit of a laugh about something that's very tragic, and I don't mean in any way to take away from the tragedy of the uh, the suffering of the bull, and uh, other experiences of suffering that you've that you've witnessed. But for you, I imagine that that would be uh, somewhat of a coping mechanism. Totally, and it is for all of us. And again, it goes back to the um, military analogy too, and the emergency services people analogy. If if they were to completely engross themselves in the gravity of what they were surrounded with and what their job required every day, they'd be broken people from day one. Um, you have to get to a level of acceptance that you can only influence and change and help and fix so much and then you have to be with like-minded people so that you can either debrief or sort of brush it away a little bit. You, you never get rid of it completely. Um, but yeah, it is a coping mechanism, definitely. More from my discussion with Dr. Simpson coming up. Be sure to also catch episode 82, where we discuss the industry itself here in Australia. 
Here's a short snippet where we talk about some of the seemingly unbelievable contradictions within the industry. This is research that they've done themselves with people they've chosen to be their researchers and then they have chosen to vehemently resist embracing or adopting any of that, any of those recommendations, which just screams to me that it can't be financially viable for them to do this trade in a good manner. And now back to part two. There was a dive instructor in Jordan who used to call you up every now and again. What was that about? <laughs> he, um, he's obviously a dive instructor and he takes out these dive boats and they, um, they, they're looking for fish. And there's a beautiful array of fish up in the, um, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is between, as I said before, it's between Israel, Jordan. There's a little bit of it. We, we can swing on Anchorage and the phone will say, you're in Saudi Arabia. And then it'll say, you're in Sinai, Egypt. And then it'll say, you're in Israel. And then you're in Jordan. And this will be within a one-hour period. And um, so all of these countries converge on this on the top of this gulf. And there's beautiful sea life in there. And... Um, and there's lots of coral and it's quite sensational. So the Israeli side is like the Gold Coast of Israel and the Jordanian side, I guess, is the Gold Coast of Jordan. And um, and so this dive instructor who also ran an antique store, so I knew him through various things, he um, he once I met him through the antique store and he said, you know, you've been here several times because you get to know your people repeatedly um, going to these same ports and they're small towns and they're not on getaway. I'll give you the tip. No, and, I don't imagine they would be. <laughs> <laughs> especially not the Libyan ones. And um, and so he's like, you know, I've seen you several times. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm with such and such a ship. And he goes, oh, right, every time your ships come in, um, he goes, I also have a dive shop, shop and every time your ships come in, we have much better um, dives. There, there are so many more fish around. And all I can assume is that they're actually smelling us. The ship, the, the fish are smelling us through the water. We're not discharging any um, dead animals or fecal matter at that point, but they must just be sensing us. So, yeah, I was going to ask because according to the laws that you were talking about earlier in the discussion, it, it would be very strict on what you can pour out when you're in port, right? So, yeah, nothing in port, nothing. Massive signs. So he, this guy was uh, basing his, uh, his, his dive business on the proximity of a very smelly ship. Pretty much. And it, and it was totally um, a reasonable thing to do as well because it's the only place I've ever seen whale sharks. So I was, I was standing on board one day working away in port and one of the, um, one of the Egyptians I was working with, he, he had very limited English and he just comes, doctor, doctor, come, come look, big fish, big fish. And I'm like, I don't want to look at fish. And he's like, come on, big, 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 massive fish. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he drags me to the other side of the ship and I look down the side of our hull and there's a whale shark just cruising up and down the side of our hull and the span behind its head or across from one side of its head to the other would have been three foot. It was massive. And um, and this guy didn't know what a whale shark was. I'm like, wow. So that's a filter feeder. So it kind of makes sense that they would be more sensitive to smells. And it's interesting that our smell must pervade the water. Indeed. Because we certainly stink. Isn't it interesting that in, in amongst the tragedy and the suffering, all of a sudden another animal, which is very beautiful, seems to find some kind of opportunity in that space? Exports full of stories like that. It's... um. It's really interesting. People expect me just to talk about killing and death and, and I'll have funny stories about different people and cultures and experiences such as that and they're just, they look at me like I've, 
I don't know, taken some kind of magic elixir. Um, but I guess that's part of we can't dwell on the what's happening on the deck all day, every day. We do that as a job and I put in my official reports um, and deal with what I think should be amended and changed and problems I have. But then you're on these ships 24-7, so you've got to make the most out of the other things you do. That concludes part two of this three-part case study series on the ethics of the live animal export industry in Australia. To catch the full story, you can subscribe to Learning Capacity on your favourite podcast app and look for episodes 80, 81 and 82. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast and science-based language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, we're always keen to hear your thoughts on these podcasts. Please send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.